0: Hey everybody, it's me, Ian Shapiro, here with Politics Explained, only on Anchor. And today I'm joined by Seth Maskett. Uh, If you look at the segment that we posted just before this, you get a wonderful bio of Seth. And Seth has agreed to talk to me today about political science more generally and how we relate what we learn in political science to this crazy world of politics that we find ourselves in in 2017. Seth, thank you so much for being here with me
1: today. Well, certainly. Thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, so well, that's all the pleasantries I think we have time for. I'm going to lead us right into the meat. (laughs) Uh, a lot of people who listen to my station and a lot of uh, you know of my students and my colleagues were all kind of asking ourselves this same question. We saw two very unpopular candidates in 2016. We had Donald Trump for the Republican Party, Hillary Clinton for the Democratic Party, and a lot of individuals were unhappy with this you know this binary decision of the lesser of two evils. So I was hoping if you and I could help illuminate on why we have a two-party system in the United States, and maybe we can talk about some of the benefits about having a two-party system in the United States.
1: Sure, that's a that's a big one.
0: <laughs> oh, it's a big uh, one, but
1: we got to start somewhere. Sure. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, your listeners are probably familiar with uh, what's what's generally known as Duverger's Law. Uh, uh, political yeah. scientist Maurice Duverger uh, many years ago proposed that. Uh, democracies that have electoral systems like we have, um, that is uh, first past the post, winner take all, um, where, you know, no matter no matter how many candidates are involved, you know, whoever gets the plurality of the votes in that district wins the entire district. Those tend to boil down to a two party system. It's not an ironclad thing, but um, it's, it's a tendency that tends to work out. Voters come to see. Casting a vote for a third-party candidate as not only a waste of a vote, but something that actually helps enable their least favorite candidate to win. So, and you know, we've we've tended to see that in this country, and it's 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 certainly reinforced by other features of the two-party system here. I mean, the fact that it's. Mm Um, in many states, it's, uh, it, it's simply a lot harder for uh, minor parties to qualify for ballots, to get, to get candidates on the ballot. It's, it's harder for them to organize. It becomes kind of this self-reinforcing system. No one wants to join a third party or give money to a third party because they don't think it has a chance of winning. And that, helps, that also helps it do worse in the next election cycle.
0: Yeah, Seth, I think that's a really good characterization of kind of the logistics of why the rules of the game kind of perpetuate a two party system. And Mm -hmm. then I want to kind of come in and give us a a springboard of like what benefits they have. And that is kind of the ease of communication, right? So if we have these party brands, Republicans and Democrats in the United States context, then voters don't have to pay too much attention to politics and go outside, you know, the routine of their daily lives in order to actually be able to participate in politics meaningfully, to be able to assign a brand or an identification to themselves. They know what it means generally when they say, I am a Democrat or I am a Republican. So, just by having two parties and having, you know, despite the polarization involved, having a very easy, like, dichotomous choice, you actually know more about politics in a two party system than maybe you would in a four, five, six, or seven, or any kind of multi party system. And that would kind of be my pitch for why they're useful in a democracy. They can convey information to voters that they may not have had access to
1: otherwise. I I think that's an accurate read. I would also add to that that uh, what often doesn't get mentioned when people advocate for a four or five party system is that once those You know, regardless of how the elections work, once all those parties get into office, they then set about forming coalitions so that they can actually govern, usually by a majority rule system. So you may feel better about your choice. You may, you know, have the option of a party that more directly represents the things you need. But once that party is in office, it immediately starts negotiating compromises with other parties to try and form a governing coalition in a two party system basically, those, uh, you know, those compromises all happen as well, but they happen before the election. You get to see those play out. And it can create a situation where, you know, everyone is sort of dissatisfied to some extent with the major party that they, they, even the one they lean toward. But you also know what compromises they've made to get into office in the first place.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up coalitions because we (laughs) seem to have an unstable Republican coalition right now, in the American legislature. So Republicans now control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And I have not uh, read the Constitution recently, but it's my understanding (laughs) that that's a pretty good, yeah, that's a pretty good formula for being able to govern, Uh, theoretically, of course. This is political theory 101. So do you have any thoughts or insight of why the Republicans haven't been able to govern, at the very least, on big ticket items that they ran on You know, things like the AHCA, which was kind of shut down when it first came to a vote, became more extreme and then was voted through the House. So, you
1: know, what should we be looking at as an indicator of getting things done? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this is a fairly recent phenomenon uh, for the Republican Party. They had uh, majorities of the House and Senate and the presidency a decade ago. You know, they uh, I, I don't know that they were the most productive uh, majority in history, but they were able to govern. They were able to pass some of uh, President Bush's campaign promises. And uh, w- there's a there's a level of dysfunctionality right now that's, that's really fairly shocking. And, and I think there's a number of things that feed into that. We have, you know, there's kind of a, a party government tradition that we've had in which the party that's out of power basically uses that time to develop policy proposals for the next time that they're going to be in power that time being out of power can be very useful for policy generation for working with between members of Congress between lobbying groups, between think tanks about you know coming up with whatever the next great uh, you know idea for the party is and I, I think the Democrats prior to Obama's nomination uh, were a good example of this whoever got the nomination and in 2008, for the Democrats, was going to be someone who was committed to some form of healthcare reform, and it, and you know, and there were some differences between Obama's and Clinton's proposals and John Edwards' proposals, but they were more or less in line with each other, and that was just a policy generation process that Democrats have been going through for a long time. Uh, same thing with, you know, say, Republicans and tax reform prior to Ronald Reagan's nomination in 1980. That was something that that his faction within the Republican Party had been working on for quite some time. And they were really ready to go once they had, you know, the uh, some sort of a, of a governing majority. And we really didn't see that among Republicans this time around. Um, they have their kind of chief talking point since at least 2009 has been, uh, Obamacare is evil, and it needs to be repealed and replaced immediately. And it never really went beyond the talking point stage. Excuse me, I was just going to add to that. Yet, yeah, the only evidence I have to back this claim
0: up is that it appears that everyone kind of says that the AHCA is Paul Ryan's signature bill, and it took us a while to, after the election to get some concrete details on that bill. It's my conspiracy theory. Yes, this one's mine. I think Mm -hmm. Paul Ryan wrote the whole bill in his room during the Republican weekend retreat
1: earlier in the year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's entirely possible. I mean, it, (laughs) mean, it, it was really a striking bill generation process. There were almost no hearings. This was done very rapidly. If you just compare it to the way uh, the Affordable Care Act was generated in 2009 and 2010, the the first floor vote on the Affordable Care Act wasn't until November of 2009. It, uh, you know, that was a long process with lots of very open hearings, lots of places for members of Congress to develop expertise, lots of places for lobbyists and interest groups to weigh in about different aspects of it. This was just something that Paul Ryan just kind of said, okay, here's the bill. And uh, a lot of the Republican Party was not ready for it and was really uncomfortable with it. That's why they had to pull the vote initially. I think on top of that, you have some real challenges in who Republican officials are right now, in the sense that you have some who are, you might call like, you know, Randian libertarian. Style, at least that's mm-hmm. where uh, Paul Ryan kind of kind of fancies himself. Some are, I think, just more traditional cultural conservatives, and then you have you know Trump and whoever's on his team. Um, and Trump is kind of he's obviously very difficult to pin down in terms of policy preferences. But to the extent he said anything about healthcare reform, it's sounded like he wanted something that was like Affordable Care Act, only even more generous, yeah. insurance for everyone, paid for by the federal government. And then, then he then found out health care was complicated. Says, okay, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And then Paul Ryan says, okay, here's the bill that's the exact opposite of what you just said. And Trump's like, great, let's do that. And so it's, I, I think it's kind of hard to build a governing coalition around that. And I think, yeah. you know, add to that a general tone over the last 40 years that Republicans have been working on, which says, you know, that government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. And that may have been a good talking point in the early 80s, but it's become uh, an article of faith that essentially any collective action is, is inherently evil. That that's <laughs> makes the policy generation process all the harder.
0: Yeah, no, that all that tracks, that makes a lot of sense. That's, I've never quite thought of it that way, but I super appreciate <laughs> Uh, I, I want to get your own kind of editorial on that larger question of, you know, why can't Republicans govern? What's the long-term trend that we've seen with party government? And you don't just put your ideas into writing in academic journals. You're also one of the founding fathers of political science blogging. And given the, the title of the blog that you most frequently work for, Mischief of Faction, uh, I'll just I'll, – I'll name you, I guess, the James Madison of political science blogging, <laughs> <I think. laughs> let's let, let's let's attribute the Federalist Ten when we can. Uh,
1: and, and so I guess Wow. I, okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't
1: know. I... <laughs> uh. I don't know if I'd call myself the Madison in this situation. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't the, you know, there were people in political science who were blogging before I was. Um, Dan <laughs> Dresner, certainly. And, and there were a few others. But sure, fine. Let's, I'll go with Founding father. That sounds good. Maybe it could be. Yeah, we, we, I don't we, know.
0: yeah we, we don't get to give ourselves our own nicknames, Seth. They're attributed okay. to us by okay, others. Okay, fair enough. Excellent. Um, I, what do you see as the role of political scientists in how we communicate our scientific, we use the scientific method to generate findings after observing the world around us uh, and kind of committing what we find? I, I suppose, do political scientists need to stay up in their ivory tower or is what you're doing and others doing worthwhile in how we communicate po- politics to, I guess, the mass public or the people who consume more popular media?
1: Um, so I mean, I, I think we really should and could be doing both. The scholarship role is very important, and that's something that we are, you know, as political scientists, are uniquely trained for. We can be doing just very intensive. Systematic research, testing hypotheses, and that goes through a you know, very lengthy data collection and testing and peer review process. And I, I really believe there is something very important to that whole process, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to short circuit that. That said, I think there are things that we as scholars can be contributing to more immediate discussions of politics. This is part of what motivated me to get involved in the first place. You know, I would read news coverage or watch TV coverage of politics, and a lot of times just get very frustrated. And I, I'm certainly, you know, I'll generally defer to political journalists in the work that they do. I know they, you know, they know their subject matter, and they know that they're their sources, and you know, they're very good on on reporting. Uh, what's immediately in front of them. But I think in terms of more contextual things and understanding causal relationships, I think we have uh, something to contribute there. And Uh, you know, it can be kind of painful to watch coverage that just assumes that everything is about the latest scandal or everything is driven by this little campaign advantage that one team has, or, uh, you know, this much advertising spending is going to actually completely be a game changer. And so I, you know, I kind of wanted to be involved in that discussion to at least try and, you know, influence coverage a little bit or, you know, at least be part of the conversation to some extent. And I uh, was kind of hoping blogging would be a way to do that. And it, it took a while you know I started fairly small on a blogger platform. you know lots of others of us just you know did it in a in a pretty limited way on a you know in a very independent fashion, but I think it's we've become much more Uh, institutionalized over the last decade or so. And it's been great to see that happen. I think we're much more part of the conversation now than we used to be.
0: Yeah. And what a time to be part of the conversation. Right after the 2016 presidential election, all I could remember was different media outlets, different journalist outlets talking about what just happened, right? So like the polls got it wrong. Let's Mm -hmm. theorize on why this may have happened. Why is Donald Trump our president? What did campaigns do wrong? And immediately you see a lot of theories or hypotheses thrown out there, things like uh, the, the shy, Trump voter theory, that people didn't want to express affirmation for Trump because of social desirability bias, things of that nature. And then you can look at something like the monkey cage on the Washington Post. Uh, Patrick Egan had a post, gosh, a couple of months ago, kind of saying, hey, no, we can actually use the scientific method, run an experiment where our variables that we manipulate are the medium in which we survey people. And they found that in-person interviews, telephone surveys, Uh, anonymous online surveys, people were no less likely to say that they affirmed Trump. So we actually Mm -hmm. have the ability to enter ourselves into this larger conversation, and at least steer it towards more meaningful pathways. We can kind of say like, no, we can kind of dismiss this and begin looking at new problems to discuss.
1: Yeah, honestly, I think that that's a great example. Um, And really, if you, you know, if you watch like, a half an hour of, of, CNN commentary, where they'll have like a, a panel of reporters or uh, commentators just, you know, going back and forth about what the latest uh, political story of the day is. They're spouting out, you know, dozens of different hypotheses all the time. And they say, well, this happened because of this. And oh, very clearly, <laughs> the American people wanted that and without any evidence at all. And it turns out, well, a lot of these things are testable. And <laughs> we're the ones who can actually test that. And, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense to try and make a whole academic paper about, you know, some little comment that someone made on CNN and spend three years trying to get that published. But it, it might be possible to actually say, okay, well, there there's a larger story here and maybe I can collect a little data and see if there's any merit to this theory and then, you know, write up a blog post about it. That might only take half an hour, an hour to do. Um, and maybe that's worth uh, a little bit of pushback.
0: Yeah. Hey, Seth, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful interview. And before we go, I need to ask your opinion on just one last thing, and that is, what is the true meaning of kofefe?
1: Kofefe <laughs> is in our hearts.
0: <laughs> oh, I see. It's, it's all things to all people. It's whatever you need it to be yeah. at the time. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> awesome. Hey, Seth, thank you so much. This was a great interview, and I really enjoyed myself. Oh, great. Thank you so much for doing it. it good talking to you.